This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. Like to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. The fact is there is a lot of affirmative, a lot of positives, but there is still a lot more we need to do. But the fact that we're in these positions, that empowerment narrative, we are in the boardrooms, probably not as much as we should be, and that's the next frontier. I think those decision-making positions where if it wasn't for people like yourselves on the panel allowing our mob into the room, I firmly believe you've got to be from the top and lead and walk the talk and we will get there. You know, we're such a tiny population, but that 65,000-year gift that is if you get to live and breathe and be a part of this country, that's what we were taught. You're part of our story. And the more Australians have realised that, the better we'll be. Celebrating Australia's First Nations women. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. International Women's Day provides an opportunity to pay tribute to the tireless and important work of First Nations women across Australia. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women have been the backbone of their families and communities for generations and generations. International Women's Day celebrates these women, particularly their groundbreaking professional accomplishments and the impact on their family and broader communities community. Over the years, Indigenous women have risen up to become leaders, allowing them to play a significant role in moving the conversation forward around reconciliation and gender equality. Despite these accomplishments, Indigenous women continue to be disproportionately impacted by a number of social issues. So how can improved outcomes be achieved and how can an increased visibility within the creative industries contribute to this change? Earlier this week, to mark International Women's Day, a panel of First Nations leaders, change makers and creatives came together to share personal stories of adversity, perseverance and success. Joining the conversation were Director of Indigenous Content at SBS, Tanya Denning-Orman, producer and storyteller Alison Page and actor and writer Nakia Louie. That is a great reminder too of the continuous culture that is on this country and many of our First Nations cultures like mine are matrilineal so that power of women and the role of women in our communities is something that has had generations and generations of being celebrated and I think one of the things that I've always appreciated about being brought up in First Nations culture and with First Nations values is that we do take time to acknowledge our ancestors. We have lovely ceremonies like Acknowledging Country, which now so many other Australians take part in, but that idea of honouring ancestors is a really big part of who we are. So in this International Women's Day, as we celebrate the importance of matriarchy and women's voice, I'm going to ask each of you what International Women's Day means to you, but also who are the trailblazing women who have made a big impact on you? Well, um, for me, as Alison was saying, this amplification of a time when we haven't had our voices heard for so long. And for me, it is an important day. I'm a big believer in moments. And I know we can say, yes, we celebrate every day and bringing together people where we can actually focus and then think about the conversations we hear and then take that away. It is an important day that we have an opportunity to talk about our stories and then how we can 
make the world a better place. And for me, those women, obviously, you know, very much matriarchal family. My mother, my grandmother's are still alive. Like, she's a big line dancer up in Hopevale. She's in her 90s and speaking language and sharing culture. I've got other grandmothers have passed, but, you know, I feel them around me all the time. So... The women in my life have been very blessed to have had that strength and you learn from seeing and you learn what you could possibly be from those women around you and, you know, I'm so blessed that they gave me the gift of believing I could do anything. Yeah, well, that's a really hard answer to follow. I think for me, International Women's Day is a way to build community and I think we quite often take building community as something for granted because I quite often think about what is the country of Australia What are we as a group of Aboriginal people? How have things changed in the last couple of years? I'm a big believer in symbolism matters. I think we get told that symbolism is just tokenistic, that it doesn't mean anything. I think it's important to have recognition that things do trickle down. So I think for me, International Women's Day is about community building. Our automatic, I think as people, we want to tell stories about ourselves, about who we are. And I think something like International Women's Day is an opportunity for us to be able to change the story, to include people, to shift values. That's been critical to make sure that the day is inclusive, that it is, that we are questioning, that we're including people. But for me, it's it is an integral part of storytelling. And I, I think that's really important. My mother and my grandmother and the women who went before me, my mother grew up in a tent by the river. I now get to write for HBO. My grandmother, you know, would tell me stories of hiding from the Aborigines Protection Board because I used to always ask why she was so fussy about being so clean because it annoyed me. So I think about the change that's happened in such a short span of time. That's magnificent, but that's from people on the margins fighting against the power at the centre. And so for me, they're the trailblazers. And as an Aboriginal artist and storyteller, I feel very much I ride on the shoulders of giants constantly. So community means everything to me. I've had Larissa come out and support me when I've opened my big mouth and gone to fights with people um, I've got in the your paper. Back. So, you know, I, I really think community and building community are not only the people who you rely on to create a trail, but it's your responsibility on days like today to take those values and continue to build that community and create paths forward. Alison? I grew up in a house with a single mother and six daughters. So to have my own clothes tonight is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) No one's going to borrow these, all right? In a way, Women's Day was kind of every day as I was kind of growing up and I sort of took that for granted in a way because when you go out into the big wide world, it can be really isolating and I think as a black woman as well, you can be really isolating. So I'm with you on that, Nakia. I think the idea of just having a chance to stop and back each other up. I mean, just the conversation I had... I might have looked like I wanted therapy when I was talking to you in the green room earlier. But um, it really is important just to have other women to kind of talk to about what's going on because everything for us as well as black women is going so fast at the moment. It's so accelerated. So to actually, International Women's Day is a chance to stop. Eventually we will have a chance to have a drink, ladies. I know we will. 
I think it is really important just to have that at least on one day because otherwise when do we get a chance to do it? Of course, you've all mentioned the importance of voice and storytelling and the big national discussion at the moment is around the voice to parliament and the referendum. So I just thought what I might do is ask each of you just to give your perspectives, to share with the room who I'm sure will be interested to know what your views and reflections are and what you think about the voice or what you're hearing in the community, however you most would like to, I guess, approach the issue. But what would you like to share about your observations about the voice to parliament and the upcoming referendum? And I'm going to start with you this time, Alison. Thanks for the hard-hitting questions. Actually, it's a very simple proposition that's being put forward, really, to the Australian people, and that is, do you support the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, which I think if it was just that question, we wouldn't even be having any debate. It's really the second part of the question that everyone seems to be in a bit of a bind about, but it's quite simple. It's really just asking Australians to support the idea that our people should have a say in how things are run in our communities. It's a way, really, of communicating between the government and the people on the ground, which is really like the big trunk of a tree going out to all its little tiny roots. Clearly, that communication hasn't been happening, especially in the last 10 years. I think it's happened before. We've had systems like The Voice before with ATSIC. Um, So we know that it can work. But I think it's frustrating for me. I think I've, I've supported Conrec for such a long time and I've been such an advocate for recognition you know, because the Constitution's racist, like it's got really racist things in it that are just really antiquated and, and it really does need fixing. But I hear it sort of being bogged down with this people kind of begging Australians to, you know, oh, can we please like maybe, you know, have a say in how we might fix incarceration in our communities or fix housing in our communities. I mean, so for me, it's a no-brainer. Vote yes. All right. <laughs> and Nakia. Oh, now I feel like I'll be using you all as therapy. I am a big believer of how can a community be able to dream of a future if it doesn't know its past. And I don't think Australia knows its past. And I think ultimately that's a battle as Aboriginal people, but not just Aboriginal people, the rest of the Australian community fight every single day. Who are we? Because we don't know where we're from. I was recently in Northern California and a bunch of land has been given back to the First Nations people in Northern California. One of them is a place called Sequoia Point, just outside of San Francisco. Another bits of land are just in downtown Oakland. And I bring this up because you're just driving down downtown Oakland and you turn onto a residential street and between two houses there'll be a block of land and it says this land has been given back to the Ohlone people the Segrote Land Trust, pay Shumi, which is like pay tax, land back. And they call it rematriation, not repatriation, rematriation, because it's this idea of changing values. And I thought that was really interesting because they don't have treaty and they don't have constitution or a voice to parliament, but it is a fundamental shift of values that changes how a community looked. And I'm going on this tangent just because I've been thinking about this, is what would it look like in our city if we had bits of land back around Sydney that belonged to Aboriginal people? 
And so the reason I say this is because I think... I was talking about stories about before we need to tell stories about who we are. I think this country needs a fundamental shift. And I think regardless of whether you believe in treaty, land rights, native title or referendum, something needs to happen for us to be able to change our narrative as a country for there to be equity, not just for Aboriginal people, but for everybody else. So I think at the end of the day, when that vote comes whether it's a yes or a no, you're voting to change the story that we're telling as a country. My big fear about it is that you get caught so much in the politics of it, the legals of it, and I mean, we're talking about constitutional law, which is one of the most difficult areas of law, is that I don't want Aboriginal people to be punished. You're doomed to failure because you dare to dream. Why can't we have big changes in this country? And so in a way... Even though I'm someone who believes in change from the bottom up, I think having that symbolism, changing the narrative and saying we're going to recognise Aboriginal people in this country, we're going to give Aboriginal people some power, I think that really changes what Australia is and where we go in the future. Sorry for ranting. I love screen. And I, I will just point out that Tanya, obviously with her role at a national broadcaster, is a bit confined by editorial policies about advocating one thing for, or another, but obviously you would be able to give a perspective. Yeah, and it's just incredible being on this panel, like doomed for failure because you dare to dream and the narrative of this opportunity that we're all in as Australians is incredible. This is why I'm so passionate about my industry and have dedicated so much of my life to storytelling. And what's the other thing people say is the great amnesia of our history and how important it is for media to take this moment, but all of us as individuals to take this moment in this lead up for these next, you know, potentially it's a November, October, November moment where, yes, it's a First Nations shift but you know we're only what we say three percent of the population so this really is an Australian moment which I'm hoping in the lead up to that we are having more and more of these conversations where we're actually elevating truth-telling as Nakia was saying it's the story of us how that us is united together that it's not just something over there or that was experienced and or you know it's for First Nations people to do deal with. So for me, you know, what am I hearing? What are the experiences? It's very complex, but as the ladies were saying, we're not constitutional lawyers. What do we do? Are we going to vote? Yes, there is campaigns launching last week or two weeks ago in Adelaide. There's a campaign at the end of the month in Tamworth launching a no campaign with First Nations people, a part of it. So I can imagine six out of ten Australians haven't met or may not even care to meet a First Nations person. So media and our responsibility is critical in this point. And what I'm hearing from mob back home or, you know, what we're reporting on is that clarity. So how we break down the simplicity of it and then dare to dream of what this moment can be and that shift. Yes or no, next year is going to be a very different place for us. How do we take that forward as Australians? But for me, in my role, ensuring that we're impartial as one of our public broadcasters, this is D-Day for us because we're wanting to ensure we're delivering 
the truth-telling that our communities have been asking, the truth-telling that is all of us, that's our journey together the last 250 years, but then the truth-telling of the 65,000 years as Australians and what that means today to be a part of this country, and then the deconstructions of the institutions that we're all a part of because of the movement that we're all participating in right now, whether we realise it or not. We were talking outside, what, 18 years ago you went to Breville with the concept of changing institutions wouldn't have looked at us then. It's incredible when I see now the First Nation narratives in a lot of different institutions now. We didn't have that five years ago. So this conversation is just as critical from my perspective as when we go to vote. At the moment, we're looking at the fact that our population is, what, 600,000? I think there's about 80,000 of our mob who aren't enrolled to vote. So we want to ensure that they know about their participation of this moment and the impact it can have on them or the impact of voting no could have on them as well. So for me, it's about information, clarity, and breaking it down to the simplicity of this moment, how powerful a moment of a vote yes or no, but, you know, we had people walking over the bridge over the weekend. I remember walking over the bridge in 2000 and that symbolism and that shift that happened in 2000 and this is the moment we're all in. It's a critical time for all of us, yes or no. Obviously, that's a really insightful reflection on how you approach the complexities of this particular issue around the voice to parliament and the referendum. But I wonder if you could share your reflections more generally about why it's so important to have First Nations media reporting across a range of issues, particularly why that remains important as we see more and more First Nations journalists work at places like The Guardian or the ABC. Why is it so important? Where does mainstream media go wrong? Wow, there's a lot there. For those of us over the age of 40, might remember 99. What... 99 didn't have that we have. It was really quite exciting, I remember, as a young journalist, but we didn't have social media. We didn't have people uptaking and creating their truths and their reflections of it. You know, journalism was that place where you really had to ensure the accuracy was reflected appropriately. There were still issues back then in 99. I'm actually really excited over the fact that we do have that diversity and that that I think I do think our audiences are smarter than what some media outlets probably give them the benefit of. And it's critical because you can take the way that people could be having their own agenda and how do you make sure that we're not in a public broadcasting sense trying to go one way or the other, but we're actually elevating so we're not fear-mongering. I'm, um, you know, mindful with my team about what it was like when there was a campaign under the Howard era about backyards being stolen. So I'm mindful of our team and what we deliver, that we're delivering facts and truths, like what are the conversations that are going to be happening in schoolrooms? What are the conversations that are going to be happening in corporate Australia where there's only, as you know, we heard earlier, maybe one First Nations staff member and all these questions are being put on them. So the power of media is critical at this phase. How we play it out, 
is constant facts and getting the truth and the information out there and ensure we're amplifying the right voices or all voices as well so that Australians can make that decision themselves. It can be a very dangerous place, the media, and how we ensure that we're delivering facts. This is the time we all have to be careful. That's Director of Indigenous Content at SBS, Tanya Denning-Orman. You also heard from Nakia Louie and Alison Page. They are speaking at an event held earlier this week in Sydney to mark International Women's Day. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. On the program this week, a panel of First Nations leaders, change makers and creatives share personal stories of adversity, perseverance and success. But how can their achievements uplift those who remain most marginalised? More on that shortly, but right now, some music from Mixed Relations.
That's mixed relations with Aboriginal women. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. This year's theme for International Women's Day is Embrace Equity. And this is something that First Nations women and women all over the world have been asking for for a long time. Not only just equity, but diversity, inclusion, understanding, tolerance and gender equality, all of which are incredibly important for the social, economic, cultural and political advancement of women and their families everywhere. Now, speaking of changing narratives really powerfully... Many of us grew up not seeing First Nations people on television. We were super excited when Aaron Pedersen came along because there was a black person on television. And, of course, Deborah Mailman. And, and, you know, obviously there were a couple of other personalities around, but in terms of mainstream storytelling, we were invisible. Nakia, you have been at the forefront of changing that, first by, of course, bringing First Nations stories in, but also in ensuring that there is visibility of First Nations stories in broader contexts. And I just wonder from your perspective, how important has that shift been? How have, how have you felt that change? And why does it continue to be so important to have Indigenous creatives leading storytelling? It's really, I, I mean, I think my career was fairly serendipitous. I answered an ad, so I started writing theatre as a failed law student. My grandmother fell through her housing commission floor and passed away. And then termites ate away at her, her house and Department of Housing wouldn't fix it. And my mum and I would call every day and we called for Nellie Year, please come fix the house. And they didn't. And she fell through the floor. And within a year she died. And the reason I, I, I bring this up is I, from there I, I wrote my first play, which sounds so fanciful and, and silly now. But what that play did, what me being able to tell a story did, was it saved my life because I would have been consumed by the anger. I would have been consumed by the same racism that killed my grandmother, that she had fought all those years for her family to escape. And so the reason I think that telling stories and why representation is so important is because... There's a saying, if you can see it, you can be it. If you can hear it, you can say it. If you can see someone like you telling a story that you identify with, then maybe you think, oh, I have a little bit of purpose in this world. Maybe someone will listen to me. And if you think that you have value and that someone will listen to you, that to me is what changes the world. So I went on a bit of a tangent there. But I think representation has been so incredibly important because I think we really undervalue our capacity for empathy. I think we think that First Nations storytellers are only really good at telling First Nations stories. I think First Nations stories are incredibly relevant to all of Australia and the rest of the world because we're speaking to power. We're criticising whiteness. We're speaking directly to colonisation, which happened not that long ago. I think as a world, we're trying to figure out, as we have these conversations about class, gender, sex, you know, things go ultra-left, things go ultra-right, you get into fights on the internet, you're like, who are we? I think it's because we're actually trying to tackle these big issues because we're trying to change the narrative of who we are. And the reason I go back to First Nations storytelling is that I actually feel really lucky as a First Nations storyteller that I have so many amazing First Nations storytellers before me who I am just following in the work of. But also it feels like I'm able to tell a story that is cheeky, that is uh, questions power, 
that is funny. I learnt humour from being able to laugh in the face of your oppressor. Um, the day my nan died on her deathbed, she said to me, what can you do if you can't laugh? So to be able to want to change things and say a, a hurtful truth with laughter, I think it's just a gift. But also the reason I think that Aboriginal storytellers are so important is that I think... We question our empathy. I identify with white men all the time. A lot of the people who I aspire to be are, are white guys. So I think, you know, when we're putting people who are <laughs> Aboriginal female storytellers, people who are gender diverse, people who come from different backgrounds, I think we need to actually have the people who get to be the protagonists. We need to, like, let white men allow them to kind of step up a little bit because they'll have the empathy too and, and then things change. Sorry, that was a big... Ta- I'm just tangenting tonight. Uh, yeah, 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 pretty much. Well, if they knew how much fun we have, they would. Alison, I wonder if you can share with us, from your perspective, how you bring together your creativity and your culture. You obviously trailblaze across a lot of areas and just wonder if you could share with us what your creative practice is you said something very interesting to me about you don't think that aboriginal women don't really stay in one lane that we have a whole range of things that we do and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that concept and how that relates to your own creative practice yeah thanks because i started out in architecture and interiors you know 25 years ago I was having an amazing time working in an Aboriginal architecture group. Luckily, the government architect at the time really cared about this idea of rematriating country and saw the built environment as an extension of country. It was really great. But, I mean, at the time, no-one else... ..no-one else really cared. No, certainly landowners and developers at, at that time in the 90s, the mid-90s and the late 90s, I mean, it just wasn't a thing... You know, I naturally came to storytelling through architecture. could only happen if you were Indigenous because we... All of our stories are embedded in place. All of our stories are embedded in our objects because that was the only way we had the written word. So if you want to understand traditional knowledges and unlock traditional knowledges, then you have to find the stories and decode them because they're all encoded with all of this knowledge. And, you know, that's our song lines. And so now, like 25 years later, after, you know, doing a bit of filmmaking, designing furniture, I now work on pretty large-scale developments in the city in urban design. I don't care if people think I should stay in my lane. Like, I don't give a shit about that, because I think... Actually, Aboriginal culture is extremely multi-art form. It always has been. We tell the same story through dance, through art, through carving in the ground. We, we naturally move between art forms all the time and I think it's a really colonial construct that we're sort of... We should just stay and do one thing and stick at that. Maybe I'd be better at all of those things if I had a st- stuck at it for longer... But what's really interesting just about some of the things that you've been saying here is that Aboriginal culture is this amazing gift to all Australians. It's actually a cultural inheritance of all Australians that we have this culture that was extremely sustainable, extremely coherent with nature. It had a very beautiful and affectionate social kinship system 
and sense of community and social mores that we're all told through our stories. And I think that that's the sort of thing that we have to kind of, you know, when you were saying, Nakia, like, who are we? I think until Australia truly matures and sees Aboriginal culture as central to its national identity, then I think we're always going to kind of keep... Well, we need to keep battling, actually, until that happens. I think that's such a great point. How do you look at a culture that's been around for at least 65,000 years and not be curious as to how they did that? It is not a fluke. It is about how we live sustainably with country, but you make a really good point, which goes back to this theme of community and how we all feel connected. It's also about how we lived with each other. I find it shocking that Australians aren't more curious about these cultures and so readily accept that there must have been something savage. Something that's savage doesn't last for 65,000 years. But it also, I guess, reminds me that we're very used to being framed in deficit models. We're very used to being talked about by what's wrong. But we grow up in communities that even though they're poor, and I think all, all of us came from very impoverished backgrounds and look at us now... But we did come from those backgrounds and we know what it's like. But in those childhoods, all we knew was love, affection, cultural connection, the richness of story, the loves of mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, etc. So I guess my next question for you all in terms of what I like to think is the strengths-based approach to our cultures is I wonder if you could share what your concept is or an example of black joy. Let me start with you, Nakia. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you said we're framed in a deficit model. I think quite often the way that we're asked to present ourselves, especially in mainstream media, is through trauma. And I even did it tonight in telling a story about my grandmother and that, you know, we are defined by our trauma, whereas I think Aboriginal people have experienced trauma. Um, We experience trauma every day, but our existence is one that is exactly the same as anyone else, is through laughter, love, joy... I want to go on and be a bit naughty and be like, food, sex, all of that stuff. Um, uh, So for me, uh, black joy, it is being able to to laugh in the face of rebellion. It is being able to evolve and be inclusive and being able to have a value system of being kind and wanting things to be better despite the shit that gets handed to you. I always thought that was really fascinating is when people talk about things like reconciliation. It's like, well, we what have we got to reconcile? But clearly, you know, we're not a a culture of, of, of kindness because, you know, given the history, things could look very different right now every single day and they don't. We're trying to make progress that's inclusive and creates equity for everyone. But black joy, to me, my family laughing, it's the... Aboriginal debutante ball <laughs> that my mother runs in Mount Druitt. You know, for me, black joy is taking something that was not meant to be for you, to exist on country that was meant to be taken from you, and to laugh. And for me, freedom and the biggest changes have come from an utter display of being able to hold hands and say, we're going to do things differently. So... Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Alison, Black Joy, what does it mean to you? It's an example. Well, my middle name's Joy, so I thought, why well, I must be Black Joy. It sounds cliche, but I, well, as soon as you say those two words together, I just get an image of 
back at Christmas time just being with my aunties and, and just laughing our heads off and spending time together. Being here in Sydney and I have this privilege because I'm working on the redevelopment of Circular Quay and White Bay and a few other developments and being able to open those doors for some of my aunties, like my actual aunties, the same ones that I... (laughs) The same ones that I play cards with at Christmas, you know, and let them come in and actually start having a say in these huge multi-billion dollar projects. It's sick. It's unreal. And... To see the look in their eyes as well, and we we make sure they get paid really super well, like architect $300 an hour rates. They're just like, this is unreal. This is amazing. So to me, that's super joyous because also what's coming out of it as well is seeing the architect loving this opportunity to co-design with community to rematriate country like it should have been, to create increased sites for different species in the middle of a city, you know, which is totally possible. And I think to see some of them who lived through the 67 referendum who were nothing, they were nothing, and they came from nothing, for them to have an opportunity, I think, to ride the wave that they created is pretty joyous, pretty cool. You've both just taken me on a journey and how to extend from those. Black joy is just being, just an existing in a world that tried to take us away and the laughter, despite or in spite. My family were in the missions of Aurobinda, Palm Island, up in Hopevale, and despite that, the laughter and the Christmas time and the family and the, you know, I should have mentioned to go back to where we started with your first question over the inspiration. I was um, a girl on the other side of the railway tracks and I saw a beautiful Aboriginal woman reading the news. She wasn't just a journalist, she owned the news bulletin, RTQ7, uh, Rabina Colby, and she's still up there and she knows this story. I've mentioned it a few times and I saw that and I was like, whoa. It wasn't just someone on a country practice being locked up or the flying doctors, a little foster kid or something being treated. It was a woman owning the information that was hitting my lounge room and I thought, you know, in a male-dominated world, I grew up in a mining town, railway town, to actually see a black woman was doing that. I saw what I could be and that set me on a trajectory. So the black joy for me to bring it around is the power of what you can see and the fact that we do have, you know, to come back to one of my passion projects. My life um, dedication is when we switched on NITV as a narrowcaster in 2007, we didn't know if we could have a future. Um, The Australian media was very different. But that shifted again in 2012 when I was able to, you know, lead it to becoming freely available to every single Australian and change Australia's media landscape where we could have black people every single minute of the day. The next step was getting mob to actually switch on and watch us. So what we've done recently is infiltrated more media. So we're partnering with 10, we're partnering with Netflix and we're partnering more with SBS. So we've got 68 odd different communities. First, new Australians, Arabic, Mandarin, Cantonese, they're all getting our stuff our way through us. That gets me black joy. The fact that, you know, you were our original chair back in 2007. We didn't know what was going to happen. We beamed to the bush. 
The fact is there is a lot of affirmative, a lot of positives, but there is still a lot more we need to do. But the fact that we're in these positions, that empowerment narrative, we are in the boardrooms, probably not as much as we should be, and that's the next frontier. I think those decision-making positions where if it wasn't for people like yourselves on the panel allowing our mob into the room, what we want next is to take over so we've got more CEOs, more people in the boardrooms... Because that decision, when Nikia is saying from the ground up, I firmly believe you've got to be from the top and lead and walk the talk. And we will get there. You know, we're such a tiny population, but that 65,000-year gift, that is, if you get to live and breathe and be a part of this country, that's what we were taught. You're part of our story. And the more Australians have realised that, the better we'll be. And to go back... Recent research is saying, to leave on a positive, that Australians are for the first time, I think the Scanlon report at the end of last year, they're actually asking, they want this story. For the first time, Australians voted up high for more information in schools. That's a big shift. They're actually wanting this. They're identifying racism also is on the rise. I think we're identifying it, we're calling it out. We know as Australians we need to fix ourselves. So that gives me black joy because I feel like we are on a shift. Before I ask the last question, I just wanted to share with you because as you've been talking, I've been reflecting and one of the projects I've been doing with Tanya that she's brokered a very groundbreaking deal between Channel 10 and NITV. But I just wanted to share very quickly my Black Joy story was we were out doing the last bit of filming on a wonderful story on Gomorrah country about the kinship system with these aunties of an amazing Gomorrah mathematician who has done all of the mathematics in the kinship system. Anyway, because of our timing, we stayed and we got caught in the floods, so we couldn't get out. And we were on the side of the town that was completely locked out. There were no planes coming and going. There were no roads out. We had all the camera gear. We had the crew. And it was getting like the Hunger Games because there was no food. And the aunties just went down to the river and caught fish, got all this yellow belly, played cards all night and were working out between them how they were going to billet the very handsome men in the film crew who were looking really nervous. And to me, that was black joy. When there's a disaster around, these women knew how to have a good life. My final question, and you've talked about a lot of really big issues, and I guess one of the big themes that I hope people take away is that First Nations cultures and stories that are a part of this country that everyone lives in are central to Australian identity and therefore every Australian is invested in them. And we also talked about the big questions that are facing Australians, that every Australian is going to have to, as you've pointed out, think about what kind of country do we want. So my last question to each of you is, what's your advice to non-Indigenous Australians about how to be a good ally? And I'll start with you, Tanya. I think it's not just about showing up to events like this. It's, it's about what is that next step that you're also taking the weight of the change. So often what I'm observing, rightly so, because we're told First Nations-led, what I've witnessed then is people are not, you know, the burden for the change of absolutely everything. You know, our responsibilities are huge because we are in all the different lanes. So for me, the importance of 
allyship is ownership and actually putting in the hard yards, rolling up the sleeve to go that next step. And what is your yarns at your friend's dinner party? And how do you actually correct any sort of misinformation? But then what do you do that next day? So what's the physical change? So I think you're better off for it as well. It's something that can fill you with black joy, so to speak. Yeah, what I've learnt in 25 years is as soon as people, Australians, understand or they go on a journey and they start to understand Australia's true history, like actually what went down here, it's pretty confronting, it's really painful, it's really full on. And then coupled with that, once they actually go on a journey and they start discovering the depth and breadth of traditional knowledges and how incredible that is. I think once you get those two things, there's no way you could ever say no to Aboriginal people because it's actually an amazing gift to all Australians, really. And so for me, I think the best thing to do is to become a voice for country. And a voice for country means being a voice for traditional knowledges and being a voice for truth. Because as we move through this country every day over time, we want the stories of country to be activated for you as they are for us. And that, to me, would be the best thing you can do as an ally. It's one of the biggest challenges with that, though. I was taught with the Western framework is to understand that things need to be delivered completely differently. And so you can't just take that traditional knowledge and then just deliver it the same way that you would ordinary science or ordinary architecture or ordinary storytelling, that everything is up for change and that that takes time and to just slow down a bit and take the time to do that. That's producer and storyteller Alison Page. You also heard from Director of Indigenous Content at NITV, Tanya Denning-Orman, and actor and writer Nakia Louie. They were speaking earlier this week in Sydney to mark International Women's Day. The event was hosted by Future Women in partnership with Witchery and Breville. To take us out, we'll leave you with some music from Moju.
the show for this week. Join us again next week when we catch up with academic artist and historian Professor Brenda Croft. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.